You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. What's going on, sweet people? Personas dulces. Forging Fury. Forging Fury. Forging Fury podcast. I'm so excited. We've got faces only our mother could love. Can't believe you just said that. Love you, mean it. What's going on, sweet people? This is Coach Riley, and on today's episode of the Forging Fury podcast, along the uh, alongside the executive producer Michael Gray, love it. We are with our friends Cameron and Michelle Moore of Continuous Motion Physical Therapy. Right? I got that right, right, Craig? Correct. Yep. Perfect. All right, we're rolling. Yes, and we're really excited to talk to Michelle. Right? Well, Michelle and Cam. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I, they want, <laughs> we wanted to do a separate interview, but like together, I think is better. Just kidding. We were excited to talk to you, too. <laughs> That's all right. Welcome, guys. Yeah, Thank so, you so much. First off, thanks for having us. We're in your new home, which is right across the street from our gym. Uh, let's, let's talk about that. Like, you guys are just opening your doors, building together. Let's, let's, let's talk about that. This is your first, like, your so, first home, correct? That is. We started off as a mobile service going into people's houses in October when we moved back to Goodyear after a few years of traveling. And we quickly found that we were limited in what we could offer to our clients, wanting to be able to do some more movement analysis instead of using a broomstick to look at their snatch. We want to see <laughs> people with barbells and under load and see them doing their sport. That's what initiated us to look for a physical location where we could really offer the very best quality of care for our clients. And it just happened to be a stone's throw away from CrossFit Fury, which is amazing. And, and we it worked out at, real well. Yeah. We, we looked at places all over the West Valley. We knew we wanted to stay out here in the sense that this is our home. We know the community really well, and we really wanted to enhance mm. the West Valley. And when we this space became available, we thought it was perfect for what we wanted to offer. I, I love the I love the the bay door that we're looking at just rises right up when I'm coaching I look over and see Cam and I just give him a big force gump wave like hey buddy well yep. I feel like Wilson from Home Improvement doing a little uh, over the uh, fence yeah, look sneaking nice. so uh, we're in a their gym space which is a really cool feature they're gonna have is that they have these evaluation rooms or clinics or well I don't know the terminologies taught me but then they have a space and you actually can move around and and do like like Michelle said do your sport or do the lifts that you want to see and they kind of can have a better eye on you when you're actually doing the things that you want to do. Um, but tell us about what kind of toys we're going to have in here soon. So right now we uh, just put up a squat rack right behind us. And then uh, Peter's dad helped me uh, put it into the concrete. And then TJ helped me put it up on the studs of the wall. But then we're also going to get, we have a GHD that we're building along with then a reverse hyper. Got some uh, jerk blocks and then we got barbells, bumper plates, so we can get under some load and look at uh things as in real time and do video analysis too is great to be able to see something in fast motion but also slow it down and really look at the nuances is your low back hurting because you have something that's biomechanically wrong with your back or is it a movement fault that we Mm -hmm. could improve upon so really getting into the meat and potatoes so that when we're offering offering our treatment we're getting at it from the right approach to the root cause of it so looking at the bar path looking at how you're doing your kipping pull-ups how, how you're moving under some load is really important for our overall analysis. I saw a video of Lisa Brockman uh, using that technology. I think it'd be fun to see like how your li- how, how the it lift. Was it Coach's Eye? Uh, bar Path. Bar Path. Yeah, yeah I thought that was cool. Uh, uh, she's a Patreon supporter, Lisa Brockman. Got a yeah, shout, shout out to her. We love that lady. So. <laughs> uh, tell us some advantages of having this, this space and like other than what you said, just kind of seeing people move is like, mm, what, the question that I'm looking for is, 
the space you have here, like, is that exactly what you guys wanted to do is like be able to see people move more? Like a lot of clinics, I've been to a, a lot of physical therapists, uh, a lot of different places, like, but they don't always have this kind of space. Like, was that you guys' idea from the beginning? Like you knew you needed that. Yeah, our, I would say our, pay, our our passion is CrossFitters, Olympic weightlifters, powerlifters, people that are trying to do more than, say, just the average person. So then this allows us to really get in and hone in on that versus just saying, okay, you're back starting, we're going to do these things. Or, okay, you're back starting while you're deadlifting. Let's look at your deadlift. Let's look at your snatch. Let's look at those. Let's use you know bar path to look at the bar path of the bar, get under it that way as well too, so that we can utilize all our tools that we have along with then you know, the manual therapy side as well, too, that we'll do. And I think our space is really set up the way our model runs in the sense that when you enter the front of our clinic, it is two private treatment rooms. That's really important to us that we have one-on-one care with our clients. And we do a lot of hands-on approach to treatment. So initially trying to put the fire out or take the symptoms down, getting to the root of what's causing that through some manual therapy techniques, uh, spine manipulation, dry needling, these different techniques that we use in our private treatment rooms and then having the capacity to come into the gym space and having that unique blend of hands-on approach being that one-stop shop where we can treat all of your musculoskeletal needs, but then also see you um, under your load and in your sport to treat you from a continuum of care from that initial injury all the way through your performance goals as well. That's a huge separator, I think, in the physical therapy space now is like, having that hands-on treatment and then seeing them like you moving, you doing your sport and them having an eye on you to help that. But today, our episode today, we really rarely have experts on here in certain fields, but you guys are such doctors. Since Jordan Leonard. I mean, he was our last expert. I'm pretty sure. We got to definitely, we want to try to keep more smart people on this. That's right. Those are big shoes to fill for sure. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Not with us. I mean, if, if you're just competing with our smartness, you guys, yeah, this is easy win for you guys, (laughs) but we want to like, show you guys or show your kind of a knowledge and like we kind of constructed some uh questions of like common crossfit questions of like what would our members want to ask you guys because we want to show how smart you guys are so we want to number one tackle the debate lifters or no lifters do i need lifters should i buy them and why are they worth it do you want to take it or do you want me to go ahead so i would say with lifters if you're wanting to do specific olympic weightlifting it would be a yes, but then it's also, what are we trying to do with that as well too? If you're just trying to a lift more weight, they're definitely going to be helpful. I think there was a research study where they showed that you could lift about 10% more weight with that just because of the hardness of the sole. And so there's a big difference between say a running shoe lifting in that versus say a CrossFit shoe versus an Olympic weightlifting shoe. If you have pretty bad, say ankle mobility. So I think your knee over your toe angle, or they call it like dorsal flexion. So it's ability to pull your toe up to your shin. If you don't have that at a sufficient amount, as you squat down for an Olympic lift, you're going to have to have an increased torso angle. That's going to put a lot of strain into your back and then also not allow you to, say, uh, keep that upright torso to catch the snatch, catch the clean, or just keep your torso up for the back squat as well, too. So there's, it can help you, say, as you're gaining ankle mobility as well, too, to get depth on a squat to get the full range of motion there as well, too. So it, it can be a hit and miss on people that way. So it couldn't be... A help, but also we don't want it to be a hindrance just because you don't want to take the time to say work on your ankle mobility. So CrossFit shoes like Nanos and and those things are kind of a good between, in between between like running shoes and lifters. You're saying 
Yeah. Or they make virtually they're no garbage difference. running shoes. Let's be honest, they're terrible. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't. I'm not. A, you know, for short running, I'll use them. Um, if I'm going to run longer, say than 800 meters, or it's something where I'm not doing any barbell movements, I'll throw the running shoes on because my feet like that a lot more. But for if I'm going to do specific Olympic weightlifting, like if I'm really training for that, then I'm going to throw the lifters on. But I find for myself personally that if I work some cycles without the lifters and then I throw the lifters on, I'll get a pretty big jump. And so I, I think you should be able to do both is really kind of the, the key to it. But the lifters definitely can improve that because it, it's the uniform for Olympic weightlifting essentially. Yeah. Do you ever do like barefoot? Just I have probably, probably you, if you can't tough. do it for Olympic lifting, you probably wouldn't want to do that. But yeah. And say for like, say deadlifts and squats. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So I have weightlifter shoes or lifter shoes and, and I use them a little bit too much at times. So my people that own lifters, like, would you say like, Hey, maybe like you said on certain cycles, maybe I don't wear my lifters because in the sport of CrossFit, like you're not gonna be able to wear your lifters when you have to snatch heavy and run. Like if you look at the games last year, they had to snatch 185 and then run 800 meters. So you can't wear your lifters while you do that. So would you, would you just, like you just said, kind of go cycles on, go cycles off? Yeah, and I, if you watch sometimes some of the game athletes, as they get closer to the games, they'll get rid of their lifters completely. Like, I don't think I've ever seen Rich Froning in lifters for a long time now. Or ever. Yeah. <laughs> but also at the same time, if I'm, you know, trying to go for that one rep max or I'm at a, you know, snatch and clean and jerk, I'm at an Olympic lifting competition, I'm putting lifters on. Sure. Like, we're going for it. But then if I'm in class, there's might be some days where, okay, I'm going to go without the lifters or I'll wear the lifters for the Olympic lift, and then I'll take the lifters off for this distance work so I can still get my heel on the ground, get the mobility through my ankle as well, too. So we can and do train it that at way. Those higher loads, too. If it increases your lift by 10%, you can get yourself under some heavier loads to get that hypertrophy and strength gains, but not also rely on them for some of the lower loads. So maybe a day where it's a one rep max or lower reps, you're wanting to train at a higher load and looking for what stimulus you're trying to achieve by that workout. Something with a higher rep exercise and, or programming, you may go with just a flat shoe in that sense. Personally, I have really tight ankles and pretty horrible hip mobility. So, like, I have to focus on not wearing my lifters all the time because it's not helping me. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the more that I get away from the lifter, it's going to help me move better in that, in that space. So, if you're married to your lifters, maybe take some time off away from them. Mm-hmm. Two, maybe we'll pass this one to Michelle so you can start off, is do I need a belt? Or do not wear a belt? Belt or no belt? I think it falls into the same category as the shoe in the sense that you can train at higher loads when you can increase your intra-abdominal pressure and push into the belt, but also not training your lower sets with the belt on and learning how to brace your midline and core. Do you think that the belt, like, is a belt a crutch at times as well, just like kind of like the shoe? I would go back to what I do with the lifters and what I do with a belt too. So I have... Like in my training log, I'll have a, a max lift without lifters and I'll have a max lift with lifters so I can look at that. And I'll also go beltless and non, you know, and belted maxes too, to where then you can go back and forth between them to where I know on those max days, I want to want that belt. But also there's going to be other days where it's okay, I'm going without the belt. Like my back sore today, we're deadlifting. I'm not going to throw a belt on. We don't need to do that. But so I, having a belt during a CrossFit workout is probably not a good idea just because like, I've tried that, but then I can't breathe. Like, you ever try to do toes bar with the belt on? <laughs> no. Not a great idea. So like you, would, you wouldn't use a belt just in a regular CrossFit workout because the, the weight's not really worth that. CrossFit class, no. 
CrossFit Open, absolutely. Competition, yeah. for sure. Like, you know, when I remember there was a uh, CrossFit Open workout where they had 55 deadlifts at 225. I'm throwing the belt on for that. Like, it's, you know, that's comp- competition versus training. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, times, and it's just, you know, with the lifters, there's an appropriate use. With the belt, there's going to be an appropriate use. And a lot of times, there's a skill to using the lifters just as much as there's a skill to using the belt. And so I find a lot of times people often aren't using the belt correctly. Like, they might not put it up high enough. Or they'll have it too low, which are where it's hitting on their hips, and they're not able to actually create that pressure because you really got to push out into the belt. And a lot of people try and pull in, and the belt doesn't help with that. So they'll over tighten the belt, and then you can break your ribs if you're not careful doing I've, that. I've uh, one time, well, I bought a powerlifting belt, like one of those thick, thick uh, rogue leather ones. And the first time I put it on, I, c- I couldn't almost not get it off. I was like, "Somebody help me!" I'm like, yeah. "I got this belt too tight, and I can't get it off." Or watch your blood pressure tank too. <laughs> yeah. I've tried to use the belt. I just maybe I'm the one of those people that just doesn't use it right. I just it. I'd rather not. That's something you guys could point. put out there on the interwebs. Yeah. How do you how do you wear your belt? I mean, they yeah. sound something simple, but if you're doing it wrong, it could help or hurt you. Most definitely. Okay, so one of the questions I had, this was me personally, um, running technique. I just saw on CrossFit's, you know, they're back on Instagram now, right? Ooh. They're oh. training. CrossFit training had a, a thing about running technique, and um, they said the things that you shouldn't do is overstride, heel strike, and there was one other thing. But, like, my question is, I learned how to run when I was – three or four how do you change running technique should you change running like what 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 would i do if i wanted to be a better runner because i'm pretty sure i have a long stride and a heel strike every time (laughs) you're gonna leave that for cameron the track athlete here yeah so i I ran track in college too and i used to do the track practice for fury some time ago but there's many different opinions just like anything with running technique um, a lot of it now is kind of, they call it like, you know, a forefoot or midfoot strike. And by doing that, you're utilizing the joints at your ankle, your knee and your hip to sustain the, the force that you're putting down versus if you're hitting just through your heel, you're basically hitting on the heel and that force is going straight up through the leg to your back and through all the joints that way versus being taken up by the muscles themselves. Okay. The other thing is they look at stride frequency as well, too. I think the goal a lot of times is 160 to 180 strides per minute. Which means shorter does, steps. That's yeah, because obviously some people think, okay, I'm just going to run faster than what, you know, your stride, or excuse me, your speed is your stride frequency and your stride length. So if you shorten your stride and just run, you know, turn over quicker, you're not going to necessarily be running faster, but you're going to be running a lot of times more efficiently. Mm-hmm. The next thing too is, you know, with running as well, it's pretty tough to do that if you have, you know, some tightness in your ankles or you're weak in the hips, like we'll find that as well too, to where somebody might like, oh, I got an Achilles issue. But then we start looking up the chain, their hip or their hamstring might be weak, and then it's forcing them to overutilize their Achilles. So the Achilles is kind of the smoke, and then the flames are somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But then to change the, your running technique, a lot of times, just like Olympic lifting or anything else, we break it down to smaller components. So we break it down into doing like high knee skipping. We do high knees. We do different things that way to kind of cue you in. There's, um, like I used to do one, we called it like a step over series where you're doing very small strides and stepping over, hitting onto that midfoot. And then same thing too, as you're doing say like a high knee skip or an A skip, um, we're utilizing that same stride technique, utilizing the arms as well too. I think Cam just put up a video not too long ago. He was a triple jump, right? Yep. Yeah. And it, it, it's amazing. Like of you triple jumping? Yeah, he's a triple jumper in college, yeah? Yeah, I just, so the women's world record just got broken, I, I think, that. this week, and she outjumped me by a couple feet. Wow. Yeah. Where was she? Where's she from? I don't remember. I saw the, I, I didn't, I saw the clip I just saw the morning. video, and I was like, oh, wow. And it yeah. was it was a woman. Yeah, and I think the record was, it was a, quite a bit old. Well, her hair was short yeah. in the video, so I was like, what? Okay. 
Got it. I guess yeah. girls can't have short hair now. Well, yeah. there we go. My son just joined track last week at uh-huh. his school. It's his first uh, first time joining a school team. So oh, cool. maybe I'll have to have, have you talk to him. Yeah. Because triple jumps, one of the things he can actually do it is his, his age. He's in fifth grade. Yeah. Okay, so going to, to changing. Like, I've done high knees, and I can strike when I'm doing high knees. I know I'm striking my foot, midfoot, mm-hmm. correctly. I don't know how to transit, translate that to running. You know what I mean? Like, it's so hard for me. I know if you saw a video of me, you'd be like, yep, you're breaking all the rules right there. I just don't, I don't know how to change my running. It's so, it's so weird. Like I've tried to take smaller steps. I feel like I'm just wasting energy. I could just take a long stride mm-hmm. and get further with less effort. And a one size fits all approach to running doesn't work. It's uh, I think they say everything works for someone. Nothing works for everyone. And so the same thing too is finding something that's going to work for you because your body size, your body, you know, anthropometry is going to be different than Riley, than Michelle, than me as well too. So it's, you know, if you look back at some world record marathon runners, they all heel struck. A lot of them heel did heel striking. It's not a bad thing. It's maybe not the most efficient thing we can do if we're just trying to be a recreational runner. Mm-hmm. Just kind of like even back to Olympic lifters, like, okay, if we're just trying to, you know, be strong and healthy, we don't necessarily need Olympic lifters. If we're trying to be an Olympic lifter, yeah, we're going to need it. Okay. Same thing with running, like, okay, forefoot strike, you know, midfoot strike, heel strike, all these things are, you know, small nuances in there, but they can also then make part of that picture as well too. Cool. As a coach, a big issue and a big question that I get a lot is low back pain. So I talk about, they say, well, it hurts when my low back hurts when I do X or when I do Y. When I do this movement, my low back hurts. Um, Talk me through like bracing or like your kind of steps to bracing or like how can our clients or our listeners avoid low back pain? And that might be a loaded question, but. I think first it's looking to where the pain is where is it coming from and really getting to the root because not all low back pain is the same. And also structures can refer pain to the low back. So really getting into what is causing the pain is, is the first component to it. And uh, then from there, looking at form, a lot of times what we see, and it's easy to be disguised, especially in women, because we do have more curve to our low back or lordosis, is that people are hinging through their low backs instead of using their hip, which is more of a ball and socket joint. Um, so that is an easy low-hanging fruit to have them tighten their shirt a bit so you can see that curve of their back and see if maybe they're sending their hips back first into a squat and getting the compression of the bar for a back squat going down into their back instead of down into their hips. But then also looking at, too, is there deficit in strength? We've found that people that have re- reoccurring low back pain, oftentimes the muscles that are deep in their spine, the multifidae, they're the deepest layer of the, pine, the paraspinals, oftentimes those muscles are weak and they can be perpetuating the pain as well. Do they have limited hip mobility? Is their hip internal rotation off? And then when they're squatting, they're having to make up with it with their spine. So all these things that we're looking at when we're in that, we're doing our um, analysis of movement and uh, having people on the table and looking at our orthopedic testing to really get to the root of it. So low back pain is such a big span that uh, oftentimes people say, oh, I'm just going to Google this exercise. It's <laughs> way more complex than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fun fact, like Michelle was talking about the multifidi, one research study that they looked at, they looked at people that had an acute onset of back pain. I mean, I hurt my back yesterday. They did an MRI on them within 24 hours and the multifidi had atrophied in 24 hours, which is crazy to think about because usually that doesn't happen that fast. And it typically will atrophy at the level of the irritation. So your lumbar spine has five levels and say you irritated, say the L3 facet, which is the, say the weight bearing joint of the back 
that L3 multifidi would atrophy within 24 hours. And then typically the back pain, typical onset of back pain would reduce as far as the symptoms of the pain would reduce within six to eight weeks. But the atrophy had not, unless they had done specific exercise to do that. The people that didn't do the exercise, they had about an 80% reoccurrence rate versus those who did exercise and rehypertrophy or regrow that muscle. The reoccurrence rate was like 30%. Wow. So basically, it's not your low back's fault that your low back hurts. Like everyone thinks like the low back is like the scapegoat of yeah. everything. Like you have to my back, you know, I threw my back out because my low back. Da, 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 da. It's you like, know me, that's me totally. Well, what, from what Michelle was saying, it could be a lot of things. It could be your hip, could be your upper back, could be that your back isn't strong enough for imbalance of some sort. Or even to go back to the lifters, if you go back. so <laughs> It all uh, comes back to the lifters. Yeah, so if you don't have the ankle dorsal flexion, as you squat down, your, your tibia, your shin bone is going to get stuck. And so eventually to get down lower, you're going to have to have increased torso angle. And we did a post on this. So letting your knees go over your toes isn't a bad thing. It adds about 10% more force to your knees. If you don't do that, it puts a thousand percent more force in your lumbar spine. And so you're, you're not going to save your knees doing that. You're just going to, you know, put more strain on your back and and backs aren't fragile either too. Like the, the tissues in our body are very resilient. They can do a lot of things. We can do a lot of, you know, bad things to them and they'll do just fine. But that, you know, something simple there is like, okay, well, my back hurts doing back squats. Well, is it because the back squat's bad or is it because your back's bad or is it because your ankle, you know, dorsiflexion isn't allowing you to get in position or is it on a deadlift? You're not able to, you know, create tension through your lats or your lats aren't strong enough to maintain your torso angle. So then you're pulling through your back instead of pulling through all the muscles in the posterior chain, you know, hitting your, you know, paraspinals, your glutes, your hamstrings. You know, if there's something there, we're going to put more force into one area that doesn't, you know, isn't going to be able to handle all that. That usually is where I, well, me personally, with the injuries that I've accumulated over my CrossFit career is like some, some place isn't firing. So the whole body has to like do more than it's expected to, to kind of hold that together. And then over time that something happens and that's why you get injured is like something's not firing right or like something's not strong enough. So your whole body is like trying to put itself in a position of strength. So maybe even doing overdoing that. It's like, you, do you see that a lot? It's like maybe the, the, the fire or the smoke isn't where the fire is. Absolutely. I think it's where one area isn't doing their job. Other joints or other areas have to do more. So a good example, Cameron's um, talking about the ankle. If the ankle isn't having enough dorsiflexion, the trunk has to lean forward more in a squat. We see that up in the upper um, areas. If we have weakness in our mid-back, oftentimes our top of our shoulders, upper traps, they have to do more work, and we get a lot of tension there. A shoulder has to do more work if we have a tension or tightness in our mid-back. So there's a lot of things that can influence. If one area is not doing its job like it should, another has to take over for it. Cool. Michael had a really good question about pain. Like, Can you relay that? Yeah, so um, how do you know the difference? When you're working out, what is the difference between pain and pain like good pain and bad pain yeah, essentially like, cuz there there are times when i'm i'm lifting like my my back tends to i feel a twinge in that first and i'm like i feel the pain but i'm not injured at that point i guess what's mm-hmm. what's the difference between pain and injury how do you know and what do you do obviously you would want people to come to therapy to do some of that work but i'm just saying when it comes to working out or doing a workout or in the gym when do you say all right i'm stopping right there we use a stoplight approach in order to, when we're working with our clients and uh, the scale of zero being no pain, 10 being the worst pain you could imagine. And thinking about pain being a low level of pain is acceptable. As we're working out, some things don't feel great all the time. So we say pain less than four out of 10 
A mild amount of pain is acceptable as long as it's not sharp pain. You're not having to change your movement pattern. If it's that your knee is hurting so much so that you're off shifting it, that's more than a mild amount of pain. You're changing the quality of your pain or the movement. If it's a sharp pain, if it's something that is lasting more than 48 hours after you've worked out, you've overdone it. So using that as an analogy of, okay, a yellow light being, all right, we're getting into that four to six range, or gosh, we're up here at the seven to eight out of 10 range. This is a pretty heavy amount of pain and allowing that to help guide you as far as knowing when it's okay, time to stop, or a little bit of discomfort is acceptable. Because I try to, I try to, maybe I don't gauge it from a one to 10 or a stoplight, but I try to, whenever I feel like if I go one more set, one more rep or one, or, or even a little heavier, I could see myself throwing my back out. So I just, I just don't know if, if I'm, if I'm to the pl- place where I should stop, if I'm like, I had more room to, to work and keep going with that. So, yeah. And I would say, you know, pain is a very normal experience. We need to have pain. And so fear of pain can also be just as much of a problem as the pain itself. Right. And I've seen that with people like, you know, it, they've done studies on people that say hurt their back and they can look at something heavy and those same areas in their brain will start firing off that will fire off when they actually have back pain as well too. But it's also pain is a, a good experience. If I put my hand on a hot stove or step on a nail, I need to know about it. And so it's, you know, differentiating, like you said, it's like, okay, is this kind of, you know, where my stopping point and that's fine. Or is this, I'm doing friend and it's just going to hurt. Like that's, that's the way it is. That's how I handstand pushups at CM and I'm like, oh, there's going to be painful. Yeah. yeah. Well, and same thing with me. One of the, my, the recurring themes on this podcast is me and <laughs> my, my battle with pull-ups. When I was in basics, probably almost a year and a half ago, I tried to do a kip and I just kind of came down and my shoulder kind of wrenched. And now that's always in my mind, like you're saying. I just feel like if I start kipping again, I might get have that pop out because I, I couldn't do anything with my shoulder for two or three months after that. So what do I do? If I've had past ex- experience with that, past injuries, do I still keep trying or should I just be like, well, maybe that's not what I need to be doing right now? I think it's to looking at the movement and building yourself up into that movement Um, as far as kipping versus strict is, okay, developing the strength within that movement and working more on strict strength so you can build yourself back up into, say, a kipping pull-up. I've heard the stat that you'd like to be able to do three to five strict pull-ups before we're doing kipping pull-ups in the sense that we have the tissue capacity and strength to then be able to eccentrically load or be able to um, do a kip or a butterfly and and um, load those structures in a way that they're not ready. You don't have the strength or capacity for yet. Right. And I haven't tried kipping pull-ups in a long time. I've been working on strict for that reason. Right. Well, for me, I've, I've had a couple knee injuries and, and my knee's fine. It's like my brain is protecting my knees. Like, do you see that a lot too? It's like when someone's coming back from an injury, their body is okay. Like they are fully like 100% ready to go, but like their mental, like their mental aspect looking at the movement is like almost making it worse yeah so your expectation of pain can change the experience of pain there was a video that was floating around on facebook for a while that they took people and sat them down at a desk and they told them okay we're gonna light a match and put it next to your arm and then you just tell us when it's too hot and we'll take it away and so they put blindfold on people they lit a match so they could smell it then they put an ice cube on their arm all of them (laughs) felt like it was burning and then they're screaming, take it off, take it off. And then all of a sudden they look down, why is my arm wet? Why is it cold? And it's because that expectation of pain can very much affect. So there's very much, there's a, a physiologic side to pain. You know, we're, we can't say that the pain is just not there, but sometimes it's not there appropriately. And that's on the, kind of the psychological side as well. And it's not to say that pain is in your head. Pain is a very complex experience and that there is a, 
biological component to it, but we've also found that our thoughts influence how we experience pain. And when we've had pain in one area for a while, oftentimes that area of the brain that is represented through the low back or through the knee or wherever you've had pain will grow into other areas as well. So um, if you think about your brain, what we have is called a homunculus and different parts of our body are all represented on this homunculus with the lips being one of the biggest area in our brain. That's why they're the most sensitive. But what happens when you've had pain for a long time is uh, if it's in your knee or your low back, that area in the hemoculus then starts to grow and get bigger so it has more neurons in that area. Whoa. So that's where we can... We need to sound the bomb emoji. Yeah. We just learned a new word today, Michael. That, that's humunculus. <laughs> Motor homunculus. You could be like, dude, you're looking humunculus today, <laughs> yeah, bro. Yeah, I knew I was, this jersey's a little small, but thanks. <laughs> But I didn't, I've never even heard that word today. Well, and you, that also goes to show you don't pierce your lips because you you add pain to your lips and your mm. lip homunculus is going to get well, huge. Well, don't get those lip shots either, man. We sound so stupid compared <laughs> to these two. <laughs> right uh, do you think that CrossFit gets a black eye because of kipping? Like, you think kipping handstand push-ups, kipping pull-ups, like, they, I mean, people, do you think people live to that standard of like three to five strict before you do kipping? No, kipping's a first Come on, thing. give it to him. Yeah, I would say no, but I, I think I don't think kipping is bad. I think it's just, you know, sometimes not used appropriately. Just like when we jump up and we start doing pull-ups and our hands hurt, we got to build calluses on our hands so our hands don't hurt. We have to do the same thing on the tissues on the inside, so we have to build, you know, calluses essentially on the tissues around our shoulder, around our joints. Same thing like with lower back as well too. There's you know, a time that needs to be taken to strengthen those tissues to be able to tolerate load, just like with anything with running as well, too. If I want to go run barefoot on concrete, I'm not going to go run 26 miles the first day. I'm going to start running and build up the calluses, build up the soft tissues. And same, same thing with kipping pull-ups is I need, there's a prerequisite, you know, strength component to that. And there's also prerequisite tolerance of the tissue as well, too. Because even if I can do pull-ups for myself, if I went and did 100 pull-ups today, I'm probably going to hurt myself because not because my pull-ups are bad or because pull-ups are bad. It's because I don't have the tolerance to do that. You haven't built the volume up to do exactly. that. Exactly. Okay, so my next question kind of goes right along with what you were just saying, and that has to do with, like, body types and certain movements. I mean, obviously, you know, CrossFit is kind of a short man's game, right? And like I said before, pull-ups are my big thing. And I couldn't do pull-ups when I was skinny as a middle school or high school. I've never, ever in my life done a single strict pull-up. At some point, would you just be able to look at someone and be like, look, physiologically, you're just not built to do this well. I mean, obviously, I could work on it and do it, but I would never be able to reach your level, I would, I would think. Is that, is that a real thing or is that just in my head? That physiologically, I, <laughs> I'm just not built for pull-ups. Like, my arms are too long or what? Um, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that you're not built for them. I think it's, you're going to have a harder time doing it just because of your, your body size. You have, if you have longer arms, you've got to pull a longer, you know, longer way. You know, it's like somebody that's got short arms, think like T-Rex arms, they're going to have a hard time deadlifting, but they probably might be great at pressing strength because they have better, uh, essentially joint angles for that. So on the opposite end, if you've got longer arms, pull-ups are going to be a longer, uh, to pull. And then it's also going to put you at a disadvantage that way because you've got a longer body to pull up or a heavier body to pull up as well too. Same with like handstand pushups probably. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So you'd probably be, say, better at deadlifting, but then, you know, on you're those... Same, rowing and wall yeah. balls. Yeah. Rowing, yeah, that's true. Those are two out of, like, the 18 CrossFit movements, yeah. apparently. you got to okay. be five foot six to be good at CrossFit. <laughs> so I'm, already, I'm already a little bit in a deficit. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of issues I have. Strength is number one. Number two, losing weight, which would help me. But I just, like I said... He thinks since, that his body type, he can't do pull-ups because no, he's tall. No, I mean, I know I, know I can. I just want to 
have a good excuse for why. Tell I can't. Spud <laughs> Webb that he's too short to dunk a basketball. <laughs> it's a much more effort for him than it was for LeBron James, though, right? Well, I guess you're right. I don't, that's I don't know. That's just always been a concern of mine. Just because I couldn't do it when I was a kid, that's mm-hmm. the thing. I mean, in middle school, you had pull up tests, and I always was like, well, pass. All right, so the next question I have is kind of a two-parter. So I have 10 minutes before class or before I'm getting into a strength piece. What are some things that I should do in my warm-up? Like to get prepared to lift heavy weights, what are like two or three things that you would go into a warm-up doing? First, you want to really be thinking about increasing your core body temperature so that we can get everything loose and, and ready to accept load. So five to 10 minutes, something where you're going to be breaking a sweat, hop on a rower or bike, something not where you're just doing a walk in the park, but where you're breaking a sweat would be where I would start with. And then thinking specific to the movement, say you're going to be snatching, is breaking down that movement, whether it be that you need to work some specific mobility sticking points, and then working that specific movement, doing some pulls, overhead squat, all these different things that to warm up specifically to that movement. And I think that then goes to other movements as well as far as what are we what are we doing for the day and really thinking about getting specific for that movement. So start hot and then get into a little bit more movement specific yep. stuff. Um, and maybe Cam will take this one. I've just finished my workout. I'm doing the bacon sizzle on the ground because I'm like in pain and I'm on fire. What do I do to cool down? Like what's the best way to cool down and what should I do in my cool down? Absolutely. So when we work out, we're, we have two parts of our nervous system. So we have sympathetic nervous system. That's kind of that say fight and flight response. We're trying to get that amped up essentially during the warm up. Like Michelle was saying, like if we're going to lift heavy. We got to be getting sympathetic dominant. We want to get, you know, get ready for that. To recover, we want our parasympathetic nervous system, which is they call it the rest and digest side. And so then just like I ramp up, I need to ramp back down. So that's part of that cool down. So if it's, you know, something where I just blew my legs up or like on our row today with the marathon row, like, okay, I want to go get something that's very easy done for say five to 10 minutes, go for a walk, do certain things because that's going to help bring my heart rate back down to a resting state. It's also going to then help pump my lymphatics and my venous system to essentially get my blood circulating again. As we get that lymphatic system pumping, it pumps via our muscle contraction. It's a very passive system. So it has these valves. So as we move around, we're essentially going to clear out all the, say, you know, inflammation things that we just caused, which are a good thing. That's what we need during the exercise. That's what's going to create and uh, create strength and make us stronger. But then also we need to bring that back down. Then it's, you know, hydration, you know, nutrition, things like that are also important with that. What about foam roll for five to 10 minutes? I'm not a big fan of a foam roller, to be honest. It just depends on what you're trying to do. Like for some people that can bring them down and get them into that, say resting state. Is that the best way to cool down? Probably not. We can probably do better than that. But I would say, you know, for myself, something very simple of just jumping on the rower for five minutes, unless you just rode a 20 K or, you know, riding the air bike for five minutes, something to where we're just kind of going to bring that back down, walking around a little bit, maybe doing, you know, some easy, say, you know, shoulder, you know, stuff with the PVC, just something to just kind of open things back up and calm down. I always take a walk every time afterwards. I, I try to right do that. Outside. That's like my thing. Like mm-hmm. that, my thing as a coach is like that walk, cool down. Like, I mean, if that helps to spring it down better than just laying on the ground and, you know, doing the bacon sizzle. I have to get away from what I just did. Like it was in that, that room that I just did that. I'm, I'm walking away and I'll maybe come Leave back. Leave that there. That's right. <laughs> so what other lifestyle factors, like maybe our diet or our, our sleep patterns, do you guys think that we could improve our ability to recover or, or get back from injury? I think sleep is such a huge one. We both have whoop bands and we have really seen the influence of 
getting that eight to nine hours of sleep. Just because you're in bed for eight hours doesn't mean that you're getting eight hours of sleep and seeing how that really influences how well your body is prepped and ready to take on load for the day. Are you usually above 90% like sleep performance during the week? Well, not since we've been starting our practice. <laughs> oh yeah, but you guys when, been busy. When we, when we were traveling, we were pretty regimented about uh, getting into bed and uh, getting our, our good sleep. we're 70 plus. Yeah, days, that's, yeah, that's, that's, yeah. that's yeah. you know, admirable. I think my biggest issue is that I'm, I get in bed and I don't go to bed. Like I'm spending a lot more time in bed than I'm actually sleeping. Mm-hmm. So I've been trying to eliminate that a little bit more. Um, yeah, add three kids to that mix and let me know how it goes. Well, <laughs> dude... I didn't tell actually, you. Actually, I sleep pretty well. Okay. You, you, yeah. You should see this guy's sleep stats. They're actually kind of through the roof. That's right, baby. He sleeps for like 11 hours. My heart rate's like 40. Yeah. It's like almost scary. I've seen it on the, the whoop group. Yeah. Are you, are you concerned about me too? <laughs> well, people, I'm impressed. Yeah. Frank, Frank Mendoza comes up. He's like, dude, go to the doctor. <laughs> I was like, oh, I don't know. But what I, about uh, with like foods that we put into our body? Like how can our diet affect our recovery? I think uh, hydration is really important. We had a patient that was a triathlete that we had been talking with, and she was having issues with recovery. And adding in an electrolyte really brought her uh, recovery status back up, which was pretty interesting to see. And then same thing, too. It's making sure that we're getting you know, adequate protein, especially for CrossFitters. We're doing a lot of strength training, but most people getting you know, near their body weight in grams per, uh, of protein is pretty good. And then you know, supplementing in, you know, we can get – kind of the nuances of, you know, enough carbohydrates to sustain exercise, but not body fat, like CrossFit would say. And then same thing with fats. Um, I personally, I tend to run a little bit higher on the fat side. I just feel better that way. Um, but it's, you know, I think that's very person specific. There's some people that will tolerate a really high fat diet and some people tolerate really high, high carbohydrate diet. It just depends on their, you know, it can even get into their insulin sensitivity. And some people have gone as far as they'll get a you know, glucose meter and they'll test like, okay, here's white rice. Here's my insulin response. Here's sweet potatoes. Here's my insulin response. Here's, you know, corn tortillas or whatever they, they want to do. And so they'll get real specific that way. But I think, you know, getting adequate sleep is probably one of the best performance enhancers. Second is making sure that we're hydrated and the electrolytes in there as well too, especially in Phoenix during the summer, like you're sweating. I struggle so much with hydration. I, I'm a big coffee guy. So I'll have a big thing of coffee in the morning and like maybe from coffee in the morning to dinner at night, like that's the only water I'm drinking, which is kind of scary. Yes. I struggle with hydration. Do you drink other stuff or just, you don't drink? I don't drink. Like I think I have like a camel. I can just last for a while. I don't know. Like I I don't get thirsty. I don't feel thirsty or feel like super dehydrated, but I am sweating a lot like through the day. Like I don't think I've really stopped sweating in fury, especially during the summer. Yeah. But like, yeah. How, how would you say to, how do you improve your hydration? Like how, how would you tell someone like you need to drink more water? How do I do that? I think even something that just keeps you accountable, having a big jug and saying this is how much I need to drink per day or there's different apps, there's all sorts of different things. But looking at then um, your hydration in response to your recovery with if you have your whoop or other things and noticing how you feel can really seal the deal as far as creating that habit instead of just thinking, oh, I know I should do it. Everybody knows that they should get more sleep. But when you have something that's going to keep you accountable and you can see the difference whether it be your stats or how you feel, it's just that can really seal the deal as far as making that habit change. I've been reading a book called uh, Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, and it, it's just been like the biggest. I've I've almost hit the snooze button or like arranged my alarm because this book's talking about how important sleep is. It's like, well, I don't need to train. This is more important. Like getting that extra 30 or 45 or even an hour of sleep could be more like beneficial to me than working out for another hour. And- like. Go ahead. And sleep is really interesting because it can also influence how we feel pain. 
Mm-hmm. And by getting lack of sleep, it's been shown that we have an increased sensitivity to pain pressures. They did a study where they looked at uh, the sensitivity to pressure by using a pressure gauge and pushing into individuals' arms. When you were sleep deprived, that number was less of how much pounds of force you could take before you felt like it was painful. So that link between sleep, performance, and, oh, and pain is just, it's so interesting how that can influence us in multiple levels. I just got to the point in the book where it says you think that exercise would help sleep, but sleep actually helps exercise more. It's kind of like an inverse. You're like, well, if I work out hard, I'll sleep good. Well, but have, usually if you sleep well, you'll work out well as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, having a lack of sleep also makes it harder to put up, put up, put up with other people's crap too. So <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's yeah, an emotional thing makes too. you an asshole, and let's mental. be honest. That's right. <laughs> So we've been talking about a lot about training. We've been talking about some myths through the CrossFit realm. Like, is there any certain myths you guys want to debunk in the physical therapy space? One thing that we see a lot is people with low back pain. They think that it's because they have a weak core. That's what's causing their low back pain. That's what I thought. And we've treated, <laughs> I've treated bodybuilders that have low back pain that have chiseled eight pack abs. And they've really found that this myth has been propagated since the nineties that a weak core causes low back pain. If you look at the physiology of the muscles, the muscles that are commonly trained to address low back pain, such as the transverse abdominis, they don't even attach into the spine. And it's thought that the timing is off. These muscles are weak, all these other things. The timing is off by milliseconds. Hmm. Not, Not a lot. And what's been found in the research as far as looking at individuals that have low back pain, it's like when you hit your funny bone, that that timing is off because you have pain. It's not because the muscle is weak. Those muscles of the transverse abdominis, they don't even attach into the spine. So by contracting down our core, we're actually increasing our intra-abdominal pressure, which actually puts increased pressure on our spine. And looking at the core is not a standalone, but the core is being the core as a whole, the front, the back, the side of the torso and how everything's working together. But you don't have to do more sit-ups because you have low back pain. That's a huge myth. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think people will ever encompass their back, like their low back, their kind of posterior chain, like upper back, mid-back as their core. Like all of this together, front and back is your core, correct? Exactly. Yeah. Okay, you guys are giving me the eye. Like a, f- a fun test for the lower back is, I think we've, we've done them in there called Sorensen Hold. So essentially it's doing a GHD back extension so if you're facing down on the ghd coming up and holding it parallel you should be able to hold that for two minutes that's hard yeah i've done it and it it, it hurts it gets spicy yes just body weight only yep body weight so if you fail that test what does that mean you need to do back extensions (laughs) so (laughs) that is a good yeah yeah. and that's going back to the multifidi too that's looking at those back extensors and if that muscle has been atrophied that's a good way to work on strengthening the multifidi by doing the hip extension hold on the GHD. Would you even encompass that with like more glute work too, or like maybe lunges or single leg, or like could that build that up, or is it just strictly for the low back? That, that's more specific, I would say, to the lower back because that's the a lot of times the test that we'll use. If they're under uh, 90 seconds, a lot of times it's showing me that, okay, we really need to hone in on their back. They probably need to do more deadlifting, or we need to look at their deadlift as well too, uh, as well just to strengthen everything because it's not only do they need to be able to use their lower backs, but they need to use it in conjunction with everything, which is what you're getting at. So we need to make sure that, you know, hamstrings, glutes, and everything are all firing together. You have a hard time in CrossFit class not looking at someone and going, uh, hey, dude, and, and just <laughs> jumping in? Sometimes. I would say it's worse when we go to commercial gyms. Michelle likes to stare. Um, not in an intentional <laughs> way, but I, I'm so fascinated by human movement patterns and sometimes faulty mechanics as well, and seeing how people can move a lot of load with faulty mechanics and 
just the different exercises that have come up with in the commercial gym. So, how many wives have come up saying, "You stop checking out my husband." None, but I don't get to go that often <laughs> oh, because. <that's> I- <laughs> well, do you, I time well at times when I'm a, like an athlete in a class, like it's hard for me to turn my coach's brain off. Like, is it hard for you guys to turn your physical therapy brains off? Absolutely. That we were. I mean, I remember some years ago we were sitting on a bench in San Diego watching people walk by on the sidewalk and looking at their gait pattern and saying, Hey, you see this, you see that, you see this. And it, you know, it was enjoyable. It's, you know, it's a passion of ours. So we, we enjoy doing that, but it's also, we, we nerd out on it a lot. You people watch. Yeah. So you're right. stalkers. Yeah. Well, it's right, a great, higher, great. Level, higher level of people watching. Well, yeah, that's more intelligent more than like, but that was going to be my example is even just watching people walk. Can you like, do you have to wear like horse blinders and not look? Cause like you just be like, wow, that this is wrong with this guy, blah, blah, blah. We'll be driving down the street and Cam will slow down. Look at that run. Knees in, yes. legs going out to the side. So or somebody with a walker and a cane. That sometimes those drive me nuts too, because somebody will have them. Especially the the rolling walkers, they always have them either too high or too low, or or they have the cane on the wrong side, and it's just, you know, it's unfortunate, but it it's one of those I noticed that. What lot. would you say to someone that has like faulty mechanics but really successful, like LeBron James jump shot, or like someone that's really successful but like you're like, well, what do you do now? They're in the NBA, or they're like they could improve their movement pattern, but they're so successful. They're like, will they? And I think that goes back to what Cameron said is that's worked for them, that their anthropometry, their build of their body, that has worked for them and they've been successful. It's Our, our body is made to move in a 3D manner. So um, extending our back, rotating through our back, we do that all the time in sport that um, it's it's not that we can't, that certain positions are bad is when we're loading and uh, in a way that could be more irritating. Mm-hmm. It's like Usain Bolt has a very, so he was the 100 meter world record holder. He has a very um, increased curve of his lumbar spine. And I think he actually has a scoliosis too, but he can run a 9.58 hundred meter dash. So I, I'm not going to correct that. That's, you know, there's no point in doing this, but he's also, he's the exception, not the rule. And so he, he's very much a genetic anomaly. This guy was, you know, phenomenal athlete at 14 you know, all the way through and he's a world record holder. So it is hard to say that what he's doing is wrong, but also it doesn't mean that everybody else should do that too. Not everyone is is the same. Like you should probably work on Like everyone should probably work on their hip mobility or their ankle mobility. Like we're very, none of us are Olympic lifters. So we're probably like, we need to do that work or do the Mm -hmm. T-spine work or strengthen our back or or, or all of those things. So we're not the 1%. You probably see more everyday people than Usain Bolt's. Mm Mm-hmm. And and is that this is that the clientele? I know we talked about CrossFitters, but like you want to you want to see everyday folks, correct? Or of course, what Absolutely. kind of people do you want to see in your in your in your place? Our ideal client is someone that is active and motivated and wants to get back to their sport, the goal. They have something in mind. Like a question that we have on our intake form is, how committed are you to this process? Zero to ten scale, and it's someone that is marking the three hundred percent. Like I have seen all these other providers, I'm frustrated, and I want to get back to what I'm doing. I want to be able to lift my grandkids. I want to be able to go to CrossFit, my de-stressor, not have to be worrying about modifying things. And those are the clients that we want to see. We get a lot of joy in helping people get back to what they love and what they want to do in order to live a healthy lifestyle. Anything to add on that, Cam? Nope. It covers cool. it. Yeah. So we're going to wrap this up, but we usually let people kind of take this home and like give us a quote or something that they're kind of going through right now of like, like some type of guidance or inspiration for our listeners. Like I'll let you guys look at each other and figure out what you want to say. Who's going to go first to give the other person more time? I think we need to specify that they don't get to talk about physical therapy this time because we've had that the whole show. It's got to be something yeah, outside of PT. Like or outside of the box. A quote, a book, there. something that's 
that's hitting speaking, your heart right now. Yeah, speaking mm. to you today. One thing that's really gotten me fired up lately is people talking about, oh, I'm just 40 or I'm just 50, and that's just the way it is. And age is not a barrier. You see people into their 70s and 80s that are still living healthy lives. And it's how you take care of your body along the way that's so important. Yeah, we do have changes to our body as we age, but that doesn't mean that we are become decrepit or not able to do things when we're into our, as we age. And it's frustrating to hear people have that mentality of, oh, now that you're 50, you just slow down a little bit because it's not the case. And I think age is such a mindset. Riley was saying on a podcast we recorded earlier today that he thinks people will start to live to 150 years old. Well, they say the person that's going to live to 150 is alive on, I don't and believe on the it's, earth. I don't believe it's happening. I think we're tapped out. They of, better have a damn 100. good physical therapist. So think, <laughs> think about this. At 50, you'd only be a third of your way to your life. Or at 50, you're halfway possibly to well, the end of your life. If you're having a good life, that would be good. If you're having yeah. a bad life, you're like, oh, I'm only half. Dude, we'll just be like on hoverboards by then. You'll be fine. Okay. Well, our you our heads will be in the freezers and stuff. That's fine. Yeah, we're fine. Uh, Quotes, I, I've always liked this quote. I had a poster in my room growing up that said, uh, you must always push the limits because if you never fail, you'll never truly succeed. And I always kind of like that because it's, you know, it can be put out to a lot of things. So, you know, just even like with exercise, it's, you know, CrossFit gets a bad name because they say it causes injuries, which I don't think is true. I think there's a lot of things that CrossFit does really well. And it's, you know, I would rather treat shoulder pain than diabetes. There's a lot of things that CrossFit's going to prevent that it's going to help out yeah. with as well, too. I like that. But, you know, I think being afraid, you know, unafraid to kind of push that limit. And, you know, at some point you're going to, you know, you've got to crack an egg to break, make an omelet, too. So it's, you know, getting in there and, you know, pushing those limits and, you know, seeing where the, the ceiling is. Cool. Well, I'm super excited for you guys to have your new practice, to be right across the street. And I always t- I've told you already, if you need an egg or some sugar, you just come across the street and we'll help you out as much as we can. If, you need, if you need someone to t- test some things out on, give me a call, right? If someone wants to follow you on Instagram, where would they go? We're Continuous Motion PT. Okay. Yeah, follow them on Instagram. They put a lot of good info out there in a world full of Instagram craziness and and not always the best data. They, they're pretty pretty reliable, putting out really good material. So check them out. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you very much.